0: Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people with kidney disease discover us. We really appreciate it. Now, on with the show. Sexual dysfunction is incredibly common in patients with kidney disease. In today's special crossover episode from Kidney Commute, you'll hear why it is so prevalent, treatment options, and how to improve communication around this important but often neglected aspect of health. Now, on with the show.
1: I am Dr. Kelly Beers, a nephrologist at Albany Medical College in Albany, New York, and it is my pleasure to be leading today's discussion about sexual health and kidney disease. I would like to start this discussion by defining the topic. I'm going to quote from the article, Sexuality and Kidney Disease, which is found on the NKF website. Many people think that sexuality refers only to sexual intercourse, but sexuality includes many things like touching, hugging, or kissing. It includes how you feel about yourself, how well you communicate, and how willing you are to be close to someone else. There are many things that affect your sexuality if you have kidney disease or kidney failure, such as hormones, nerves, energy levels, even medicine. But there are also things you and your healthcare team can do to deal with these changes. This is what we aim to address in this episode. The most common diagnostic criteria for sexual dysfunction are provided by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. For women, sexual dysfunction is classified as sexual interest or arousal disorder, orgasmic disorder, and genital pelvic pain or penetration disorder. For men, sexual dysfunction is classified as erectile disorder, hypoactive disorder, premature ejaculation, and delayed ejaculation. Symptoms need to be present for at least six months in order to have a diagnosis. There are validated questionnaires that can be utilized to diagnose sexual dysfunction. The most commonly used are the Female Sexual Function Index, or FSFI for women, and the International Index of Erectile Dysfunction for men. One population-based study suggested that sexual dysfunction impacted 43% of women and 31% of men in the United States, but the numbers are much higher among patients with kidney disease than the general population. Studies have shown rates as high as 92% of women with chronic kidney disease and 70 to 85% of men have sexual dysfunction with increasing rates as kidney disease progresses. This is clearly a major problem among our patients with kidney disease, but not one that's well studied or well addressed by our interdisciplinary team. Speaking for myself, I have never had any specific training in addressing sexual dysfunction And honestly, most of my knowledge about this issue, I learned from researching for this podcast episode. I don't think I'm alone in my ignorance of the topic, and I'm thrilled to have this group together to shine light on an issue that is addressing most of our patients. Our panelists today are...
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Sylvie Shaw. I'm a transplant nephrologist at the University of Cincinnati, and a lot of my research and interest is on women's health and pregnancy in patients with kidney disease. Thank you for having me today. I'm Dr. Meredith Pensack. I'm an obstetrician
3: gynecologist at the University of Cincinnati, and I specialize in complex family planning, seeing patients with chronic medical conditions like chronic kidney disease. Thank you. Hi, my name
4: is Marika Sterling. I'm a nurse practitioner uh, that works with Dr. Beers at Albany Med in Albany, New York. And I have worked in some capacity in dialysis for the past 18 years as a CCHT, as an RN, in home therapies, peritoneal dialysis, And for the last six years as a nurse practitioner, uh, rounding um, on six uh, outpatient dialysis clinics.
5: Hi, my name is Liz Lusk. I am a um, kidney patient. I have polycystic kidney disease, and I am a uh, transplant recipient going on about eight and a half years now.
6: My name is John Baton. I am a two-time kidney uh, transplant recipient. Um, I'm a resident here in Washington, D.C., and a constant advocate for kidney issues.
1: Thanks so much to everyone for joining us today. I wanna to start out with our patients. Liz, how did your kidney disease impact your sexual health?
5: Before I even was in ESRD, about three and a half years before, my doctor looked at me one day and he said, hey, I just wanna let you know that your kidney function is too far gone for you to get pregnant. Um, I was not expecting that. Uh, I, like I said, I was not in end-stage renal disease at that time. So I made an appointment with a maternal fetal medicine doctor about three hours away from my home base in Arkansas and went to go and visit with him. And he said, hey, just to let you know, you're right. My creatinine at that time was only 1.7. And I say only because when I got my transplant, it was 5.5. So I didn't think that 1.7 was a high creatinine. I definitely didn't think that it would end my chances for having a baby at that time. So I was definitely a little shocked by that. He could get me pregnant, but I may lose the baby or a kidney. And so at that time, my husband and I decided that my health and me being alive was more important than trying to have a baby.
6: And as for me, I think the thing that um, impacted me the most was the sexual dysfunction part where I found it difficult to get erections. But also, I would say my mental health suffered greatly too, because I became less inclined to pursue intimacy in any in any shape. Having to deal with the stress of kidney disease in itself, and then, you know, deciding that you wanted to date at the same time were something that I chose not to pursue as a result of my kidney disease. Um, and then you tack that on with the fact that of the sexual dysfunction at the time, it made it even more less desirable for me to pursue any type of sexual intimacy.
1: Thank you for explaining all of that to us. I think that this is something that's definitely difficult for patients to talk about and difficult for providers to address as well. Sylvie, can you outline for us some of the physiologic changes that explain sexual dysfunction in patients with kidney disease?
2: Yeah, so uh, mostly uh, for patients with kidney disease, there's disruption of hypothalamic axis, which occurs with progression of kidney disease. And there are various hormonal changes, which which is basically a reduction in levels of estrogen and progesterone, increase in the levels of prolactin and luteinizing hormone. And again, this occurs with impaired kidney clearance. This is uh, responsible for several manifestations. So general manifestations, which you see with kidney disease includes depression, sleep disturbances, urinary incontinence, and heart flushes. Uh, the other systemic effects of sexual dysfunction with kidney disease is usually cognitive decline. It's also associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease, higher risk of bone mineral disease. And as we mentioned, hyperprolactinemia is commonly seen with kidney disease, which may result in galactorrhea. The other important thing to know is that a lot of our kidney patients are on drugs which can cause sexual dysfunction which could be antihypertensives like spironolactone, pain medications like opioids, tricyclic antidepressants. And even for men, you know, erectile dysfunction is very commonly seen. And John was just sharing his journey as well. And again, it can be in the setting of drugs, uh, drugs as well, like beta blockers, including atenolol and hydralazine, which can cause sexual dysfunction in men.
1: Liz, were there ways that your interdisciplinary team helped you with sexual dysfunction? And if so, or if not, are there ways that you think it could be done differently?
5: Oh, I don't think they helped me at all. Um, You know, t- to be honest, I don't, there was never discussed. I remember just bringing up something about like, my hair is really dry. Is that something that has to do with kidney disease? And I love my nephrologist, but he was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, nothing about sexual health was ever mentioned other than hey, you can't have a baby now. So I really think that's important to talk about. Obviously, we, we can't expect our doctor to know everything. We have to advocate for ourselves. But at that, at that time, I was just worried about making it to a kidney transplant. What was, what was going to happen, how I was feeling? I mean, I was so tired. John can probably attest to that too. I was exhausted. I slept all the time waiting that summer before I received my kidney transplant. And so there were things I just didn't know about that I wasn't made aware of and those discussions weren't had and I really wish they had been so I'm glad that we're doing this podcast so that other people can say hey I'm having those issues I'm going to talk to my doctor about that so for me just being able to knowledge on everyone's level you know the the doctors understanding what can happen with ESRD and CKD and then also just patients understanding that hey these are things that happen Um, Our bodies are really complex, and especially when one organ is shutting down, how that can affect everything else. So I think this is great.
6: I think my experience is very similar to Liz's and the fact that I really didn't receive any assistance or information from my care team, medical team at all. As I'm sitting here, I'm recounting, attempting the discussion with my nephrologist on sexual dysfunction and problems that I was having with sexual intimacy, it was difficult to have that conversation when he was noticeably uncomfortable with the subject. When you're, you're talking with your doctor and they you know turn a bright color of red and don't know how to proceed or how to answer your questions and immediately seek to either do one of two things, immediately prescribe you a drug to assist with your se- um, sexual dysfunction, or start looking through their Rolodex as to who they can possibly refer you to because they're not comfortable talking um, about it. I also found that literature on the subject was very limiting as well. So even, you know, if when I went to practice that good old technique of Google searching, there was still very little information that I could find. And I would say, you know, as one of my last comments that, the mental aspect of it wasn't addressed either. It was not so much just the sexual dysfunction, but like trying to understand why that sexual dysfunction was there. Why did I have a difficult time being comfortable and intimate with people and being able to discuss it, you know, in, a, in, in an environment. And as one of the major barriers, you know, I think all this can be summed up. One of the major barriers to all of this is just how uncomfortable people are talking about sexual issues anyhow things are changing. I'm like Liz I'm super glad that we're having this podcast here and I'm hoping a lot, you know, comes out of it.
1: Thanks so much, John. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of the discussions aren't being had because honestly, I think providers aren't necessarily thinking about sexual health when they're dealing okay. with their patients. And it's something that we absolutely need to be thinking about when we're looking at our, our patient as a whole person. And I definitely want to shout out the fact that the National Kidney Foundation actually has a page about sexuality and kidney disease, which we will link to in the show notes, which does a, a kind of a, a very superficial overview. But I really appreciate that the National Kidney Foundation is making people aware of patients and hopefully providers that this is an issue that we absolutely should be addressing. Marika, as a provider, how often do you discuss sexual health with your patients? What kind of questions do they have for you? And are there any sort of resources that you can provide for them?
4: So I rarely talk about sexual health with patients, which I'm feeling kind of bad about now. But I am so happy that we're doing this because I think it is really important. I have had discussions with patients who have brought it up with me. Um, More often, it's men who are experiencing ED but I have um, had a few women that have talked to me about, you know, just lower libido, lack of desire. And generally, you know, I'll explain to them that these are common. You know, I do know that, that it has an effect. And I think in general, being sick is hard, you know, and dialysis is one of those things, you know, especially, you know, dialysis or people who are, who are entering into, you know, CKD-5, possibly awaiting a transplant. They're really tired. They, you know, have uremia. There's a lot of other symptoms that are going on. So just being sick in general does not make you, you know, especially want to have sex. So there is that aspect of it. And in, you know, in the past when it has been brought up, I usually will refer men to their primary discuss, you know, erectile dysfunction medications. The issue with that is that a lot of the things that have put people on dialysis, like high blood pressure, You know, uh, heart failure, things like that are often contraindicated for some of those medications. And for women, I will usually refer them to OBGYN because I, I, in the past, haven't really known anything else. You know, I know that there are some hormone therapies, estrogen, hormone replacement therapies have shown some improvement. And there are a few small studies that have looked at hormone replacement. And it does seem to have a lot of good effects as far as increased libido. Returning Menses and people who have lost Menses during their, you know, while on dialysis, but there are, you know, some side effects that they're, you know, that are concerned, especially with people on dialysis. So you have to take each person individually. Another thing that has shown some promise is actually um, bupropion or Wellbutrin for both men and women. There seems to be a few small studies that I found that showed some some good effects on um, sexual dysfunction. But those are, you know, I have not had in the past a lot of of great resources. I feel like now I I have a bit more. And I think that one of the biggest things that, you know, John has touched on in this discussion that needs to be brought up and discussed is there's a lot of changes when you're on dialysis, right? It's uh, there's a time component, right? You're on dialysis three times a week for, you know, anywhere from three to four and a half hours. If you're factoring in transportation back and forth, it eats up a good part of your time. You know, people are very tired. And there's a a loss and an aspect of having to kind of grapple with that just in general. Um, And I think that as providers, we need to do a better job of looking at people as, you know, as whole people. These are all the things that are going on in their lives. And the things like depression and anxiety and dealing with a chronic condition, chronic illness, especially something like dialysis, where Without the hope of a transplant, that's the rest of your life. And I think that's something that's really hard, you know, for people to kind of adjust to. So I think looking at people in that whole way, you know, depression and anxiety certainly can feed into these, you know, sexual dysfunctions. So I think it's really important for us to kind of look at the whole person when we're doing these things.
1: One of the barriers to addressing sexual dysfunction that we've been talking about is the lack of privacy in dialysis rounding. Does anyone have any ideas for ways that we can address that? I know that Marika had spoken to a social worker about ways that they do assessments in dialysis, but a lot of times questions about sexual health are never brought up because you're out on the floor and there's other patients right next to the chair that you're at when you're speaking to the patient. So does anyone in the group have an idea for how we can have some of these more intimate conversations with our patients?
2: You know one of the barriers which is uh, which John and Liz mentioned as well, is lack of um, knowledge in physicians. And you know we were talking about it initially that we have not been trained in addressing sexual dysfunction for our patients. So that's why we are not comfortable in talking to them, and John experienced the same thing with uh, his doctor. So I think that is one of the major barriers, um, lack of training, lack of knowledge which is there, which, which just makes us uncomfortable talking to our patients about that. And I think the second barrier is also um, lack of uh, interdisciplinary care and coordination. Like for me, as I can say, I have, I've not been trained in addressing sexual dysfunction. And I, as Marika was mentioning, you know, I would talk to my patients and tell them, well, I'll discuss this with your primary care physician, or I will refer them to obstetricians. I did not know what's happening on the other side. And it was very surprising to me when some of my patients later on did mention that even their obstetricians did not address that. So I think the lack of uh, care coordination is another barrier.
4: I think John touched on that good when he said that the doctor was kind of looking through who can he refer to, because I think a lot of the time we do sort of say, well, talk to your primary and then your primary says, well, this is related to kidney, you know, kidney disease. So you need to talk to your nephrologist. And then they end up just kind of letting it go because you're being ping ponged back and forth between different providers trying to, you know, because nobody really has an answer.
6: I know from the patient perspective, and one of the things as advocates that we talk about a lot is, you know, the patient using their voice and thereby as a patient, I'm just speaking from the patient perspective. You know, we have to also be comfortable in talking about these issues and making sure that our physicians are listening to us, not just something that we discuss as a passing by comment, but we actually, you know, bring it to the forefront and say, we really need help with this. I was like, as as I mentioned earlier, you know, in the beginning, I was very nervous about talking about any of this, but, you know, as I've gotten older and more like my mother, I... Speak my mind a lot more, and I confront those issues and so forth that are you know that disturb me or bother me. So I tend to be a little bit more aggressive now with my physicians in talking to them about the issues that I need to talk about.
1: One thing that I had thought about is that we have our patient care coordination meetings with the interdisciplinary team in dialysis. And this, of course, is only going to benefit our patients who are on dialysis, but that could be a good opportunity for providers to have an interdisciplinary conversation and involve the patient and make sure to remember to bring up sexual dysfunction and check in with their patient, hopefully in a way that's a little bit more private when we have those you know, annual for our stable patients, or maybe more frequently for newer patients or patients who are unstable in another way. Just an idea for other providers. And this is something I'm going to try to do going forward Now that I'm realizing this is something I really have neglected with a lot of my patients.
4: You know, for me as a, you know, as a nurse practitioner, I'm going to try to start working it in to, you know, as I'm talking to patients when they're first starting, they're not comfortable bringing it up themselves, but just in a passing way, because I think, you know, it is definitely something that we need to start working into conversations.
5: I mean, every time I go to my doctor, I have to fill out the form that, you know, says, do you have I mean, you list everything. Do you have, yeah. you know, all the things that could possibly be wrong with you? And this isn't on there. And I think it should be, it should be where I can talk about, you know, no, I don't have any issues with my thyroid and I don't have skin cancer. Or I don't have, you know, my hypertension's under control and that huge checklist that they make you fill up, but they don't ever ask you about sexual health. It's important. Yeah.
4: You know, I spoke to a, a few social workers while I was researching this and asked if any of the you know, the checklists and those um, surveys that they do and the depression screening doesn't have anything on it about sexual health. The kidney disease quality of life instrument, which is like, I don't know, 12 pages long, maybe has three questions on it. One of which is how do you, how would you rate kidney disease affects your sexual health? And then there were two questions that were, you know, how often have you, Wanted to have sex, or how you know, how often do you feel desire or, or something like that? So there was very, very little. And I asked the social worker, what do you do if they answer those, you know, negatively? And she said, nothing. And, you know, she said, no one's ever talked to us about that. They don't tell us what to do with that information. So you know, I definitely think that that, you know, is even the few questions that are being asked if you don't do anything with the information, why are you asking the questions?
3: I also, think that you know kelly you were talking a little bit about and it's come up with other people like privacy and like if you do this in dialysis or where but i think that we as doctors and practitioners sometimes consider this more of a private issue than patients do and that if you just normalize it as part of your everyday conversation like you know how are you are you tired how's this symptom how's your sex life and if you you make it normal and part of the conversation, the patient will respond because they won't think it's so awkward for you. So for me, like, it, you know, and I'm a gynecologist, so it's a little bit easier, but like, you know, it, it's just another question I ask. And and sometimes if people look a little funny, I say, well, this is just something I ask everybody. It's part of my normal conversation. And so not being so concerned that everybody might think that this is something that's private and can't be talked about. And if we just normalize it, then people might want to talk about it more and you might get more of a response than always trying to make it this, we have to have this hushed private conversation.
4: I think that's a really good point because we often sort of end up stigmatizing things because we're afraid of making somebody feel uncomfortable and, you know, then everybody ends up not talking about it at all. But if you just sort of, you know, normalize it as part of your health, which is what it is, that will make it easier.
1: I completely agree. I mean, I ask patients every single day about their bladder and bowel habits, and I don't think twice about that. So why would it be any different to ask them about their sexual health? I think that's a really excellent point.
5: I think it's easy for women because we go to gynecologists, but you know, John doesn't go to a gynecologist. So he doesn't, you know, get that option. So I wish there was a way for men and hopefully there is someday for them to feel comfortable going to their physician as well, even just a PCP and talking to them about that too. But you know, we're women and we go to that doctor and they look at those things. And so it's easy for us to talk about, but not always to talk about when we're having dysfunction about it. It's just, it's just easier to talk about because you're there.
6: You're absolutely right. You know, we don't necessarily really have someone to go to. And I will say that it's a struggle sometimes, you know, dealing with what the quote unquote masculine identity is supposed to be because I'm generation X, thereby I was sort of raised, you know, to sort of handle some things internally. However, I associate really closely with generation Z and and the millennials So I've gotten more comfortable doing that and seeking help and assistance. But I think, you know, that conversation carries throughout the kidney world and that we're just not comfortable talking sometimes about those things that are troubling us. And I know from a male perspective, you know, that's pretty true. I'll admit it. It's pretty true. And so one day I do hope that we do have someone that we can go to on a regular basis who is concerned with, you know, with those particular issues.
1: Sylvie, what impact does kidney disease have on the menstrual cycle, fertility, and menopause?
2: With all the changes we we discussed, ultimately results in sexual dysfunction. And it it usually uh, impacts four major areas. So one is menstrual disorders. About 75% of women with kidney disease will have menstrual disorders. Menorrhagia, oligomenorrhea is commonly seen. Amenorrhea is very common, one out of every two women who have stage five kidney disease or who are on dialysis will have amenorrhea. And women also have an earlier menopause, which is about five years earlier than the general population with advanced kidney disease. The second common manifestation of sexual dysfunction in women with kidney disease is vaginal disorders, which can be manifested Uh, in in the form of atrophic vaginitis, vaginal dryness, and dyspareunia. Decreased libido, again, is very commonly seen uh, with sexual dysfunction. A lot of our patients will have sexual aversion disorder, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, and about 40% of our patients who are on dialysis uh, will not engage in sexual intercourse. And as we had discussed, uh, because of the loss in the uh, luteinizing hormone surge, there is anovulation and ultimately, this results in infertility as well, which is mostly seen for women with advanced kidney disease and who are on dialysis.
1: On the topic of who we're referring our patients to, Meredith, how often are women with kidney disease referred to you for evaluation of sexual dysfunction and what kind of interventions do you recommend?
3: I think I'll, you know, echo what Liz said, her experience was in that most of the patients that get referred to OBGYN that have kidney disease is to discuss pregnancy planning. And so I would say that the majority of people are either coming because their nephrologist said you shouldn't get pregnant, you can't get pregnant. And it's really in that pregnancy space that they're being referred. And then some. Sometimes through discussions, other things come up about sexual dysfunction, but that's very rarely the reason for referral. When, you know, the patients are in the room, then we can obviously discuss the other issues like sexual dysfunction. Cause for a lot of people, pregnancy might not even be on their mind at all, but the other issues might be more relevant. So I, I think, you know, what everybody has been saying so far that That sexual dysfunction, not just in chronic kidney disease, but in general, in all patients is is really a multifactorial issue. And so there's not really like a one size fits all recommendation. This is what you should do for everybody. And it's really involving a real real multidisciplinary team. My role as the gynecologist is really to ask all those, those probing questions and find out, you know, what category of sexual dysfunction this might be you know doing an exam making sure that there aren't physical reasons for that that dysfunction and then really involving uh, the, the other sort of healthcare team members that i use and and i have to say the ones that we use most frequently for patients with sexual dysfunction are our pelvic floor physical therapists so this is a really excellent group of people that can really help people even if there isn't an actual physical problem a lot of times with sexual dysfunction just having somebody working with you in the on the pelvic floor muscles in that area can really help the other team members that we use are sex therapists and sex counselors really to address the whole the holistic aspects of sexual dysfunction and recognizing That again, it's probably due to the hormonal balance, but there are these underlying issues like fatigue, like depression. And then the other thing that I always concentrate on with patients is is that intimacy and sex can be way more than just sex, right? Like the old fashioned sex and that helping people find other ways to have that intimate fulfillment with a partner, excellent resource for all patients with sexual health and sexual dysfunction. And can really answer some of those questions that people might not feel comfortable bringing up to their doctors. And so even if you're not comfortable having this conversation with a patient, you could say, hey, there's this app, it's called the Rosie app, you know, and it might start that conversation. It's a, it's a really good resource that I use for patients.
1: Meredith, a complaint we've heard from some women with kidney disease is that they're told they should avoid getting pregnant. And that's where their advice stops. What else do you recommend to women with kidney disease regarding birth control, treatment for menopause? Can women with kidney disease have hormonal treatments for menopause, et cetera?
3: Exactly what Liz said, right? That she went to the doctor and they said, just don't get pregnant. And the reason why we tell people who can get pregnant that have kidney disease, they should avoid pregnancy is because there are substantial risks to both the patient, And then the pregnancy, depending on how bad the kidney disease is, if they're on dialysis, if they've recently had a transplant, those risks can be miscarriage, fetal demise, preeclampsia, which would worsen kidney function, preterm birth. And then many of the medications that people use for immunosuppression can be teratogenic or cause congenital malformation. But that being said, there, there are safe ways to have a pregnancy while having chronic kidney disease. You want to make sure that all of your doctors are aware that that's what you're going to do so that you can be taken care of in a, in a place that has not just the, the, high, care, the high quality care from nephrology, but also has that maternal fetal medicine or, or high risk OB doctors that are available. If you don't want to be pregnant, there are a lot of birth control methods that are safe to use. Typically, when people think birth control, they think the most common type of birth control, which is the pill, which has the most common type, which has estrogen and progesterone. And while that estrogen might not always be safe depending on the kidney disease that you have, there are a lot of other types of birth control that are safe out there. Everything from different hormonal methods or non-hormonal methods, barrier methods, And so it's really about, you know, I think, and we've heard this from John, you know, that really the patient has to be a strong advocate. And so if you have a doctor that says to you, no, you can't get pregnant and no, you can't use birth control, that's, that's not an answer. And you need to find a better resource for them and a better doctor that, that will work with them to find a safe method on the other end of spectrum. So when people are done having pregnancy and they have bothersome menopausal symptoms, there are some hormonal methods that can help, especially some like topical estrogen that is really good for vaginal dryness and the genitourinary symptoms that people can have in menopause. Systemic hormone replacement therapy has its pros and cons for all patients, not just chronic kidney disease, but that would really be a risk-benefit conversation with your doctor about, depending where your kidney disease is, your kidney function, other medical comorbidities, and that, you know, is a is is hopefully something that you know I think that we as as gynecologists also need to be better educated on disease processes like chronic kidney disease, so that we're not saying to our patients, "I don't know about that, go back to the nephrologist." Um, and you know that's not that's not fair to patients. So there are methods and and treatments that are safe, but it, it's a really a personalized decision depending on other medical comorbidities and the the severity of the kidney disease.
1: Great. Thank you. Do any other panelists have any resources or online sites or groups that they want to share that have some good information for our listeners?
6: Um, there are two sites that I use in particular when I have information now, um, now. And one of them is based here in DC, and it's called the Whitman Walker um, health, Clinic, um, health Elizabeth Taylor Medical Center. I utilize them quite often, especially on information about sexual health. I also just recently discovered, and I can't believe as long as I've been alive, I did not realize this, but Planned Parenthood is also a resource for men. Don't laugh at me, please, but I did not realize that until I was viewing a kind of a documentary series about the services and so forth that Planned Parenthood uh, provides.
3: I'll second that, John, just to jump in, it is a great resource for all genders and sexual health and tend to have really progressive physicians and nurse practitioners and advanced practice providers that are really there to give excellent care to patients. The other thing that a lot of Planned Parenthoods can offer is sliding scale or discounted prices. One of the other harsh realities in this country is that if kidney patients are on Medicare, they tend to have very limited contraceptive options. Medicare will only cover birth control pills and Depo Provera, which are often not good options for patients, especially on dialysis. And so Planned Parenthood can sometimes be a really great avenue for people looking for contraception as well at decreased prices, if that if finances are, are an issue as well. But yeah, they're they're a great resource for, for all genders.
1: Is there anything else that anyone wants to add before we wrap up our discussion?
5: So I just want to say after hearing from my doctor that I couldn't get pregnant and dealing with that emotional tornado that comes with that, if you're a woman listening or even a man getting told that the people on this podcast are looking at a picture of my daughter who will turn four next month. And I was able to carry her and deliver her with a kidney transplant. I have my high risk OB. I had 15 ultrasounds. So they were all very aware. I saw doctors all the time, did great during my pregnancy and delivery. So don't be discouraged if you do find that out. That was in 2011 that I was told I, uh, to not get pregnant and then had my transplant in 2014. And then in, in 2019 had my daughter. So you may be in the storm right now, listener, and it may seem like you're not gonna be able to see the light at the other end of the tunnel, but we're all here telling you that there is light There is still hope for whatever you're going through. Reach out, tell people about it. And um, maybe someday you'll be on a podcast talking about your child.
1: And your picture of your child on your Zoom is absolutely adorable. (laughs)
4: Congratulations. (laughs) I have been a part of a few successful pregnancies of patients. As a nurse practitioner, I only see dialysis patients. So I've had a few patients that have successfully carried you know, uh, babies to term. And it is, you know, it is possible. It's, it's a lot on dialysis, you know, usually six days a week, pretty long treatments, but it is possible. And so it's, yes, I was looking at your your very cute baby.
3: And I would just, you know, for that too, for both men and women going through this, I would push your doctors at the beginning to talk to you about fertility. There's also excellent fertility preservation out there for both men and women, so that if it's something that you're you know just beginning down the road and you're concerned that this might ultimately result in this loss of fertility, finding those infertility specialists to help you talk about fertility preservation, both for men and women, can be a really important part of this process as well, especially as patients are starting down this road.
1: That's another great point. Well, most of what I've learned from this discussion is that we all really have a lot of work to do, and we can do a lot better as an interdisciplinary team taking care of our kidney patients and making sure to address this extremely important part of their overall health, which is sexual health. So I hope that all of our listeners got a lot out of this conversation. I know I did, and I know that this is definitely going to change how I practice going forward.
0: Thank you for listening. Do you have any questions? Email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcasts at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.